Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn, the story of animation. We wrapped up our 11-part series with last week's episode on villains, but there are so many moments in the numerous interviews that we did that just didn't quite fit in other episodes or that we needed to cut for time, but they're so good that I wanted to share them with you. So we're making this bonus episode. It's not like the others. It's not going to follow any one topic or have a narrative structure like the regular episodes you've heard before. These are just fun moments that I want to share with you, the listeners. And first up is a great story from Disney legend Andreas Deja. I could talk to him forever. He's the most charming man with the loveliest voice. And he mentioned when we spoke that the Jungle Book had been inspirational to him as a kid, really a turning point in his life. And here he talks about how our childhood favorites stay with us. It's funny with people, you know, because people give me all these reasons why Jungle Book is not that good. You know, they say they, the, the story is so thin. There is no real story like there is in these other, like in Pinocchio and Snow White and all that. And uh, it's just the character study. It's just this and this. And I'm going, shut up. I love it. I love this film. But there's something when you are a kid, and this is your first film, it never leaves you. Like... Uh, People would tell me that The Little Mermaid is their favorite film ever. Well, it was their first film. And I would ask them, have you seen Lady and the Tramp? Because that's the good stuff. And they'd say, no, I know, I know, I've seen that too, but I love The Little Mermaid. I love that she's such a modern-day girl. And we're like, oh, I get it. They see themselves in these characters because it's of our time, you know. And the other other thing about, interesting thing about Mermaid was I remember talking to a teenager who was the son of my contractor at the time. And uh, he said, you worked on The Little Mermaid? And I said, yes. And he said, that was a great date movie. I took my girlfriend, you know, we just, it was like a date. And I was thinking, oh my God, we got the teenagers back. Because we lost them for a long time throughout the 70s. You know, it was not cool to see Robin Hood and the Aristocats and Rescue Museum. That was for families, for parents and little tot. So it was just interesting that we all of a sudden had the teenagers back. That idea of always loving what you saw as a kid came up with Eric Kaplan, too. Eric, who worked as a writer and producer on Futurama, gave me a little bit of grief about loving things that were not especially good. I have a weird love of Grape Ape, as bad as it was. You shouldn't. I know. I think (laughs) it's it's just the the rhyming nature of it hit my child brain at the right right time. Hey, hit the brakes, Grape Ape! Okie dokie, Grape Ape. Okay, so this is a this is a malady that I've diagnosed, which is people really like things that they were exposed to when they were kids, even though those things are bad. And part of that has to do with the fact that you're like, oh my goodness, you thought the murderer was person A, but it was really person B. I guess that was invented by the writers of Grape Ape. And later on, as you get you know more sophisticated, you realize, no, it wasn't invented by them at all. They're just the first people who put it to your childlike attention. So I think people in our culture like a lot of stuff that's bad because they saw it when they were kids. 
And I want to put my voice on the scale of, of people shouldn't do that because like I'll talk to people like, oh, I watched, um, what's that crappy movie? Attack of the Clones a third time and it's bad. And like, my goodness, of course it's bad. Why, why would you need to see that three times to know that it's bad? Go watch La Strada. Don't watch Attack of the Clones three times. Are you crazy? I feel like this is where I cover up my Star Wars tattoos. Oh, you have Star Wars tattoos? <laughs> you see, I, I always feel like whenever someone says to me, um, oh, I've seen Attack of the Clones three times. It's like, I didn't see Google News this morning. Has the human lifespan been extended to 100,000 years such that it would be a, <laughs> a time efficient use of our limited time on Earth to watch Attack of the Clones three times? But anyway, if it's meaningful to you, you, you go, girl. <laughs> I know now I'm like, oh, is he going to, I'm not going to tell him I love super chicken. Because <laughs> I do love super chicken. I know. I mean, I'm I'm sort of kidding. I'm kind of being like the heel wrestler in this context because I, I get it because the cartoons we watch as young people have the status of dreams in our psyche. They are non-rational collections of weird images that just percolate down to the lower levels of who we are. Who's your friend who likes to play? His rocket makes you yell hooray! Who's the best in every way and wants to sing the song to say? Who's your friend who likes to play? Bing bong, bing bong! Liz Harvatine, as you may recall, is a stop-motion animator. And she didn't ever intend to get into that field. But when I asked her about her favorite childhood cartoons, she told me a story about trying out stop-motion animation. Okay, what were your favorite cartoons growing up? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I loved, like, Disney Afternoon, DuckTales, and Rescue Rangers. Those were the best ones. Tailspin was fine. I watched it, but... um, (laughs) I love Muppet Babies. <laughs> Funnily enough, there is an episode of Muppet Babies where I think it's um, Skeeter, or is it Scooter, whichever the girl one was. They, like, get their hands on a camera. They're trying out different things. But they're, like, this film camera that they get their hands on. We can make our own movies. How does it work, Annie? It's simple, really. All you do is hold the camera like this and pull the trigger to make it record. And you turn this to keep it in focus. I saw a newsman do it on TV. And she does a little stop-motion animation with clay. And I remember that, like, inspiring me to, like, go get a lump of clay and, like, try to figure out how to use my parents' video camera to, like, do... And I, I didn't succeed. I never <laughs> figured it out. But I distinctly remember seeing that and, like, oh, wow. Well, if the Muppet Babies can do it, I can do that, too. If the Muppet Babies can do it, I can do it, too. Seems like a pretty fantastic way to approach life. It also is uh, very clear that Liz has that can-do attitude that if someone has done it before, she should absolutely try it. George Doherty, the creator of Bugs Bunny at the Symphony, was full of great stories. And when he described the first time that they put on that concert of a live orchestra playing along with classic Warner Brothers cartoons, it was a tale that was both fascinating and slightly terrifying. Here's George to explain why. So even though 
even in the 1980s, symphony orchestras were starting to see dwindling audiences, especially in younger demographics. And, and you know, younger people just were not coming to symphony orchestra concerts. So, you know, I was looking for a way to, to develop concerts and to create concerts that would pull people, especially younger adults, into the concert hall who never otherwise would, would come there. So suddenly with my newfound reintroduction to all these brilliant cartoons and to Carl Stallings music and Mel Franklin's music and to the, you know, the brilliance of Chuck Jones and Chris Freeling and Bob Clampett, Tex Avery, Robert McKimson, all the great directors. Uh, I thought this would be a fantastic concert. So we had to figure out how to do it in 1989. So it really took some very, very hard work. And a lot of it was slow and laborious. Some of the scores had been saved and archived, but most of them had not. So we had to recreate them, but we were determined to create them note for note, exactly like the originals, down to the eighth rest. And so it took us about two years from concept to first performance. Back in the late 80s, technology was not what it is today. Now we are able to do fantastic projections in theaters in synchronization with the live orchestra and all that. But back in 1989 and 88, this was not so easy to do. And no one had done it yet. We were really the first to do it in a live concert hall setting. You know, the video projectors were gigantic. They were like the size of refrigerators in the late 80s. I'll never forget the first time we played the concert at the Hollywood Bowl, which was, of course, an amazing experience because, you know, about half of the cartoons are set in an animated version of the Hollywood Bowl. So the Rabbit of Seville takes place in the Hollywood Bowl. Um, Baton Bunny takes place in the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, Long-Haired Hair takes place in the Hollywood Bowl. You see the bowl as much as you see Bugs and Elmer and Giovanni Jones and everybody else. So it was really exciting to do our first, one of our very first performances at the Hollywood Bowl. But the projectors were like the size of refrigerators, and they had to be water-cooled, and they had never done it like this. And nobody took into consideration that when 18,000 people used the bathroom at intermission, that the water pressure would <laughs> drop so low that the projectors wouldn't be cooled anymore, and they almost, like, caught on fire. They almost had, like, the China syndrome happening at the Hollywood Bowl with the, the projectors, like, just burning through the earth. So... We learned a lot in those early days. I would say you're probably lucky to be alive. Same for the rest of Southern California. In our episode about voice actors, we talked with Vanessa Marshall, and she mentioned that she provided the voice of Irwin on The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Hey, Mandy. Fancy meeting you here. This is my locker. So it is. So it is. But the story of her audition and casting for that role is funny because she didn't know a key piece of information about the character. So um, I go in to read for Irwin, and um, it's it's just a, a simple drawing, uh, not in colors, not a stick figure per se, but uh, there's not much going on there that you would grasp sort of any racial background, yeah? So he looks like a, a really cute, sweet, nerdy little boy to me, and so that's the voice that I did. Apparently, everyone else knew that Irwin was African-American, and they did sort of urban-sounding voices in the stereotypical way that is somewhat pejorative. And I was the only person who just did a little boy, and I ended up getting the role, and they said, oh, you know, you're so colorblind, and that's so fantastic. And I was like, I think I actually am colorblind, because sometimes... 
Brown looks blue to me. That's weird. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Didn't I had literally no clue what they were talking about. Then I saw the cartoon, and the kid looks like Urkel. And I realized, I, I mean, yes, I am colorblind and, and a member of the NAACP and on and on, but like, whoa, I, I, to be real with you, I wouldn't have even read for it if I had known that the kid was African-American because I tend to pass on any people of color because I have friends who should get that part and they're not Caucasian. <laughs> there aren't enough roles, uh, you know. My, my favorite part of Star Wars was when they cast uh, David Oyelowo as um, Callus. That that kind of colorblind casting works for me, but uh, the whitewashing thing is not so much for me. So, yeah, I would never have read for it. But anyway, I, it was my first recurring role ever, so I was grateful to have booked it. And, um, yeah, that went on for a while. It was fun. I have been pretty open about how much I love the Venture Brothers. And when I first met one of the show's creators, Jackson Public, I think the first thing that I said to him was, I have Venture Brothers sheets. That is a thing that I really have. And it was probably the dopiest way to open a conversation that I could possibly imagine. But he was incredibly gracious about my weirdness. One of the things I had wondered about that show was how he and his co-creator, Doc Hammer, keep track of all of the details that they have baked into the show over the years. Do you consciously track that or is it just in your head naturally? For the most part, it's in our heads. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when, when we're writing, like Doc and I are constantly texting each other like, has Billy ever actually met the monarch? You know, because you, you'll be arriving at a scene where like they're in the same room and you're like, I don't know if they've actually, you know, we've got seven seasons and I don't know if they've ever come face to face. I have to make a joke about that. I have to, you know, somebody has to go, who the hell are you? Because the audience knows and two of the other characters in the room know. But, you know, um, you know, we've internalized it a lot. And so uh, not not ahead of time, usually. So Sometimes we have like, like I said, we kind of plan the broad strokes of a season. And sometimes we know that we're going to bring some stuff that's been brewing to fruition and, um we do have to be more and more careful about continuity. Like the, the more history we have and the more the internet catches everything, <laughs> you know, but yeah, mostly it's, it's stuck in it. I mean, that's the, that is the burden of our lives is that, uh, maybe we only make a season every two or three years, it seems, but, uh, we are living with it every minute of every day in between, you know, like I never stop thinking about these idiots. Doc Hammer echoed that sentiment. And I wonder if um, you ever struggle, like, just to remember different beats in an arc when you return to a character's development, like, maybe a season or two later. How tricky is that for you to remember? It's awful. We struggle. We fail. <laughs> we don't have people who, who can do this for us. You know, we don't have someone I can call and go, what kind of car did Phantom Limb drive? And they can look it up and go, it was a Honda Accord with a ghost on the hood. Like, we have to remember that it was a Honda Accord with a ghost on the hood. Jackson and I text each other and, a lot, and those are almost all the questions. Or just, <laughs> like, I think the last one he sent me was, did somebody mention Cool Ranch? Or, no, it wasn't Cool, cool Ranch. It was, it was uh, no, it was Extreme. Did somebody in our show mention an Extreme Dorito? And it took, it took me, like a, like, a month to remember. I'm like, yes, the alchemist showed up. At Orpheus's house with Doritos that were both extreme 
and something else. So, yeah, it's our job to remember this stuff. That sounds mentally exhausting. Or I'll go on the internet and see if anybody else remembers it. I will just look up our show like I'm a like a like a stalker ex boyfriend. Like, what did I say? the things that came up over and over in all these discussions was how much really hard work goes into making animation. People love it. They adore their jobs, but it can be grueling. Andreas Deja told me a story about some very scary times where people were really overworked at the Disney studio. And it's a really fascinating insight to how a company works with their creatives. You have have had a long career in animation. Do you have a favorite moment or a favorite thing about it that you always sort of keep at the apex of your experience? I don't know if I had a key moment. I mean, it's just been an absolute crazy, fantastic run. Uh, way back, we could complain a lot about the overtime, and we had plenty, especially early on, starting with Roger Rabbit, one year to animate. I come back to LA, Mermaid, one year to animate. Beauty and the Beast, one, one year to animate. So you always came into the next project saying, welcome, you are behind. So it really got to us quite a bit, and people were breaking up with their spouses, and they got divorced, really, it was getting kind of bad. So we thought it was necessary to have a talk with management about this, even though they kind of knew. And we went to the Queen Mary in Long Beach and had this big um, retreat, they called it. It was supposed to last two days, one day of talking, the other day just fun. And we just let them know that uh, people in cleanup had tendonitis, uh, too many hours, and all of that stuff. And they, in, in the end, they said, well, we heard you. Uh, what we're going to do after uh, Beauty and the Beast, no, after uh, Aladdin, we're going to break you guys up in two groups and then enlarge each group, and we're going to give you a year and a half to animate. So that changed everything because things just became more normal. You know, you can really think... You're seeing through better, you know, you're, you're always rushed out that Friday deadline. So um, after Aladdin, it was the king of the jungle, as it was called then, the, the Lion King, and Pocahontas. And I didn't know that they would do this. I thought they would just say, hey, Andreas, you go here, and Mark Henn, you go there, and Glenn, you go there. They gave us choices. We really had a choice. So then it was up to the individual productions to um, lure the animators over. And we had this... Friday evening uh, wine and cheese party, plus artwork to look at. So there you go with your Chardonnay and you look around and Lion King or King of the Jungle, it wasn't much there story-wise yet. There were just some beautiful pastel drawings by Mel Shaw and some other rough designs, but there wasn't much there that would really grab you. But I knew I wanted to do animals because of my love for Jungle Book and I hadn't done animals yet, so I knew I was probably gonna stick there. But the Pocahontas group at the other end of the building, they had these beautiful Mike Gabriel uh, color visuals of Indians and their beliefs in spirits and water and trees and stones. And it was just gorgeous looking. And they already had a concept. It was really Romeo and Juliet, like two lovers from different uh, camps and the conflict that comes with that. So they were already solid. So what do you know? Everybody ran to Pocahontas. There were very people wanted to work on King of the Jungle. This is me and Ruben Aquino, I believe. And then Mark Hand came over later, too. 
So uh, I talked to management and I said, Lion King has that realism in it. We really need to, the best animators on it. They all went to Pocahontas. And management told me, well, we're just going to give some young people a chance and see how they do. And I thought, oh, this is the last movie you want to give young people a chance because we need experience on this. It all turned out in the end. And it did indeed turn out, and absolutely beautifully. So we're going to switch from an iconic film to an iconic person. So here is a funny section of my interview with voice actor Eric Bauza, where he talked about meeting and working with Mark Hamill. I remember uh, when when uh, I first met him, and it was on Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, Ar- Ar- Arnim Zola, I think that was the name of the character, and I was... Amadeus show, Iron Spider on the show. And Mark would come in. Sometimes he wouldn't be there. Sometimes he would be. And I remember he came in one time and he had a full grown beard. And I was like, oh man, what's happening? I know exactly what's happening. And I, and I, I just, you want to ask him all the questions. You want to ask him every question about, hey, so how's work today? You know, like what were you doing at other work in London? This was during the filming of Force Awakens and we were having a conversation and I, everyone knew that he was back on set as Luke Skywalker is so exciting. And the whole thing about like he, he had to get back into shape and like, the, you know, they had him on this strict diet and exercise uh, regimen and, and we we're having a conversation and in walks uh, Phil Lamar. You know, gearing up for another voice session, but in his hand. And then Phil, if you know Phil Lamar, the guy's like always fit as a fiddle, skinny as a twig. And he's always had, he always has like one hand in a bag of chips. <laughs> like, or he came walking in and he was sipping on an in and out, like he had the in and out cup. It was like either a milkshake or, or soda or whatever. And Mark just stops talking to me. Like, and I'm like, we're having like the, the deepest conversation. He stops, stops talking to me and, and he just looks at Phil's cup and he's fixated on the in and out logo, like the palm trees. And, and he went, oh, I'm sorry, Eric. I just, I haven't had a burger in months. <laughs> he just, that was this whole thing. It was like, I'm Luke Skywalker again, but I can't have burgers. He just zoned out. And it was the funniest thing. I was like, I understand. You know, in his eyes, it was doing the Tex Avery transformation into like a pork chop. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like a T-bone steak <laughs> Phil had in his hand. Now, what's the good word, strangers? Food! Sticking with icons, uh, voice actor Billy West had a story about something we could probably all relate to these days, which is the fraught world of social media. Ask me about football. Okay. Okay. Uh, What do you think about football? I don't think anything of it, except when it's playoff time. And I'm a kid from Boston, so, you know, I know they're the most hated team in the league, but it's the Patriots. You know, and they cheat and whatever people have across their ass about the Patriots. But um, I was in Maui with an old friend of mine and I was watching the game and I got all excited because it was a really good game. I mean, whatever team you were for, you got a big bang for your buck. In other words, that was like exciting game. So I, um, I'm shocked that they win New England. So I go on Twitter and I'm like, the Patriots, huh? Or what? All of a sudden, the angry Swarm. What do you mean? I think hard and long before you open your mouth next time, Mr. West. 
you know, stinging me, and I'm filled with welts, and it's like, you know, and I said, this blows. It's like you can't like anything now, and you can't dislike anything. Here they come. Close the windows. You said you can't like anything or dislike anything. You got a lot of nerve saying that. Right? How dare you? Yeah, I love it. I'll admit to feeling a slight pang of guilt being delighted at hearing a story like that about some innocent tweet turning into a stressful and weird situation. But Billy West's curse is that he makes even an awful story really entertaining. When I spoke with Mike Lazo, the executive vice president in charge of Adult Swim, he was full of fascinating stories. And first up is the wonder with which he describes his favorite childhood cartoons. Uh, you mentioned Daffy Duck. I have to ask you what your favorite cartoon was growing up. Uh, Daffy Duck. Well, I mean, it's it's many. The first cartoon I remember was Astro Boy. Um, I'm six years old. I'm standing. It's Saturday morning. I, I, this was like this was yesterday. I see this black and white very unusual design, and I'm amazed by it. And so every Saturday morning, I would race downstairs to see Astro Boy. And because it wasn't a popular cartoon, I knew I was weird, firstly. From now on, fellow scientists, every test tube and every machine we have is going to be devoted to one purpose, the construction of a super robot. That clear? The robot will look just like my son, Astro. <laughs> He'll operate on a rocket motor generating more than 100,000 horsepower. But it's, you know, it was not from the U.S. It was, uh, it was the earliest anime. That stuck with me and made me very interested in animation. But then, nothing made me laugh harder than a Bob Clamp at Daffy Duck. Snake eyes. Ah! Idiot teeth! Oh, hammerhead! Oh no! Pussycat! Pussycat! Pussy! Batman! Double hitter! Pickle Just the crazy insanity of that character. Just, even to this day. And of course, animation fans will debate the Clampett Daffies versus the Chuck Jones Daffies. And I will always go with the Clampett Daffies because they're just freer. They're wilder. They're more like jazz. <laughs> Pumpkinhead! Neon Noodle! <laughs> Jokebox Jaw! Wolfman! <laughs> You're all under arrest! And Chuck Jones is more studious and intelligent and thoughtful. And I, I want to be the crazy one. It's interesting because it seems like that, to some degree, kind of translates to the way Adult Swim works. It feels a little more improvisational and like an independent film studio versus sort of a, a more button-down, classic corporate structure kind of studio. Are you aware of that connection or is that just... A, l a little bit. I think that's a fair assessment. I don't think we premeditatedly do anything. Um, I think that people tend to gravitate towards us if they're a particular type. And perhaps it's because they see programming like that. But my general take was always that... I was always bothered that television would have a hit, and then you'd see three more of that type of thing. And I did not want to do that. I wanted everything to kind of be unique and different and appeal to maybe a different type of viewer. 
And because I think people are complicated and varied, it's possible that I can love Astro Boy and Daffy Duck. So the kind of bandwidth is very wide in animation. And if you let people be creative and do what is true to them, and you agree with it, or you agree enough with it, then you'll get a fairly rich group of uh, people working with you, and the shows will reflect that. And I th- people always ask me, what's an Adult Swim show? And I have uh, a picture of Professor Longhair playing at the New Orleans uh, Heritage and Jazz Fest, and I just point to it. And that's baffling to them. And I say, you see, Professor Longhair, have you ever seen anyone more free and more kind of inside themselves than the way he looks in that picture? And they go, yeah, I I do see that. I'm like, that's what we want. I can't define it. I just can see it and know that's who I want to be. So whoever you are and whatever your project is, I either want to be you or I want to be somebody in your show uh, if it's truly successful. So I, that did not answer your question because I don't think I can. No, it's, but it's great. If you've been listening to the series, you know that I got to meet and talk to a lot of really amazing and talented people in the course of making this show. But the person I probably fangirled about the most was actually Eric Kaplan. Futurama really is one of my favorite shows of all time, and I don't just mean in animation. I mean of any television show ever. And so getting insight into that production from the person who wrote basically all of my favorite episodes was an amazing treat. And I asked him about exactly how he delivered that incredible emotional punch that we talked about from the Jurassic Bark episode, which featured a flashback to Fry's dog in the 20th century. But it is one of those things that coda of watching Seymour is like structurally so beautiful to put at the end because it takes you on this whole journey in like a minute and a half. Right. Part of the idea was to build a machine where Fry has a good reason to, to do what he did and yet it was wrong. Fry decides giving a very, very plausible argument, and the whole rest of the episode is meant to make this argument plausible, that Seymour lived a complete life and was not waiting for him, uh, and therefore he doesn't need to bring him back from the dead. But that's wrong, and he never knows it. That's the goal of that bit of weird, non-linear storytelling, is to make that work. Well, and it's interesting because it puts the viewer in a a position, not of power, that's not the right word for it, but because you have all the information, you get all the heartbreak, but you get to watch Fry sort of blissfully go along with his falsehood. Right. That is interesting. That is interesting. That is a thing that is good to do if you can swing it. (laughs) It has come up on the podcast before, even in this episode, that I am a huge Star Wars fan. And anyone who is into Star Wars and animation remembers a project that was announced and even got made, but was never released. 
And that project was Star Wars Detours, and it was made by the creators of Robot Chicken, Seth Green and Matt Senreich. So when I had them in the studio, I had to ask about it. Are you allowed to talk about detours at all? Somewhat. <laughs> I could probably, I could probably, I know what our, our legal thresholds are with conversation. <laughs> There's a lot of it that is already well out in the public and documented and, and sort of not anything anybody's trying to deny. And I think the principal misconception about all that is that there was something wrong with the show or, or anything like that. But it really was just about timing. You know, George had been developing a lot of stuff, mostly focused on television before the Disney sale, before Kathleen Kennedy came on as the, the new steward of Lucasfilm. And one of the things that he wanted to develop was a, a comedy show in the Star Wars universe. I mean, so, he, yeah, it all started with him calling us in and saying he loved Robot Chicken Star Wars. He just wants to do that for all ages as opposed to just for kids. He wanted to have, he wanted to have fun in the Star Wars universe. He, felt, he had always felt like there was a Simpsons in the Star Wars universe. We completely agreed and it helped. Spent four years developing and producing a show with him. And then because George is like that, he just made it without an outlet or without a plan for an outlet with, with the idea, as with all of his content, that he would license it to a distributor. And so when he sold the company, when Kathy came on, there was a period of time where we were discussing what would happen with these shows. And then the focus of the company shifted to making more movies, which immediately puts every bit of pre-developed content into question. And it really just felt like timing, where... The prequels had been the last new Star Wars content separate from the cartoon, The Clone Wars, right? And so you've got two generations of kids that don't have a first-person access to Star Wars, save for something that they were born into the existence of that their parents are introducing them to. And Kathy's uh, sage perspective on this, which I've actually uh, echoed several times, is that what they needed to do in that moment was re- introduce Star Wars to the world, to a new generation, and the focus was going to be these movies and expanding the universe, hence things like Rogue One or the Han Solo movie. So it's not just the reverence of the original trilogy or your thoughts about the prequels. It is Star Wars as an oath law. It's like a massive thing. And so in that timing and Oh, what year was that? 12? Yeah, about there. 14? 12, yeah, 13. I think it was the it was like 2012, 2012 celebration yeah, where like, it got announced. Yeah. Right, but it wasn't, but it was three 30. years, three or four years after that, that Force Awakens came out. And that was really the conversation was in these next three or four years, XD would buy Detours and they would air it twice daily. And so two generations of kids, first blush with Star Wars would be with Darth Vader as a, a Michael Scott kind of CEO underneath a, a, a Rupert Murdoch like the emperor. And the debate that we had, and I had total proof of this, was that that's a misinformative interpretation. And when episode seven starts, the specter of dead Darth Vader needs to loom over the galaxy the way that the death of Hitler loomed over the world at large in the 40s, right? And so... There's just an imbalance there with with what your first blush to Star Wars is. And it's not that there can't be a coexisting uh, parody version of something simultaneous with its sincere interpretation. But there was so much emphasis placed on J.J.'s Star Wars, on Kathy's Lucasfilm, that our show at that moment made no sense. And it wasn't any disparaging thing. It was just like having – she said the best thing to me. She said it's not about the next three years of Star Wars. It's about the next 30 years of Star Wars. And we're lucky enough to be a part of shaping that, which is, it's privileged, I think.
throughout this show, every time Rebecca Sugar appears on an episode, I feel like it is a really special moment. And talking to her the entire time felt like that. She is a really wonderful person who is thoughtful and interesting, and her creativity comes through almost her skin. Like, you just feel it when you're in the room with her. But what really, really fascinated me is that she has become famous as a creator of animation. But she actually thought she was going to go into creating comic books. Oh, I mean, I've wanted to work in animation since I was a kid. I always wanted to be drawing. I didn't really think I would get to be doing this. I thought I would be a comic book artist because that was something I could do on my own. Um... I thought I'll make independent comics and I'll be able to tell the stories that I want to tell. And I could make maybe short films, but I didn't think there would be a space for the kind of personal work I wanted to do on TV. I just didn't, I didn't see anything like that. So I didn't think that there would be anything like that. And it was really when I got onto Adventure Time uh, and Penn Ward and my storyboard partner, Adam Mudo and Pat McHale, who was my boss before Over the Garden Wall, they were so encouraging and they wanted us to just make poetry, like existentialist poetry. And the more I put myself into it and the more I made it what I wanted it to be, the more they all liked it and the more they were like, oh, do more of that. I was not expecting that. And I was definitely not expecting that to become me making my own show that was even more personal to me. And I think it's it's wonderful for me and for the team, but it's also scary to put so much of yourself into something and then to put it out into the world. It's being translated into so many different languages. It's meaning something different in the different places that it's going on. It's just very overwhelming when it's your art. So it's, it's strange for me because I take cartoons, that's why I can't even say I take them seriously. I, I love them in a way that I think they have this incredible power and that comes with this incredible responsibility. And so I feel like if someone is going to have this become a part of their life and a part of their mind and if they're going to imbue this thing with life, in terms of my team and also in terms of the people who are watching it, uh, it feels like a big responsibility for me to make it something that would enrich their lives. But then sometimes... Well, I've been doing this for five years. It can feel ex exhausting <laughs> to, to have that level of pressure the entire time. And at the same time, I also kind of love it when someone's, you know, half watching it, half doodling or half caring or it just happens to be on in the background while something else is happening in your life that is really exciting. And, and then you just have this, because I, I remember that also, just whatever show was on in the background of something important that happened to me as a teenager, like becomes just a part of the score of my childhood. One of the women I spoke with in preparation for the Women in Animation episode was Jennifer Pelfrey. She's vice president of production at Cartoon Network Studios. And when I asked her for advice for young women who want to get into the industry, the advice that she gave really struck me as solid advice for virtually anyone in any industry. What do you think is maybe the most important piece of advice you could give to a young woman who is considering pursuing a career in animation? 
Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, oh, my gosh, Holly. Uh, <laughs> that's a hard one. I think be brave, be courageous, know your talent, and go for it. If that if this is truly what you want to do and it speaks to your heart, do it. And, and I really do think that the community embraces uh, diversity and it's trying to embrace diversity even more. So I think people are operating for the most part in good faith. I, I see that every day and I think it's a, it's a great community to be a part of. And right now, uh, the industry is very good. Right now, it's, it's very strong. There's a lot of different places that you can apply your craft. So go for it. This show has often touched on the magic of animation, and we often land our episodes on a pretty hopeful note. And that wasn't necessarily by design. It just became the flow of the podcast as we worked on it. So it seems fitting that we finish off this final bonus episode with a short clip from Michael Olin, the executive vice president and chief marketing officer of Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, and Boomerang, as well as one of the creators of Harvey Birdman, about how that magic is, at the heart of things, the result of all those people who work in the industry. I wish people knew how collaborative animation needs to be for it to work. I think people understand that there's usually a key individual behind something, and then that magically it appears, but really it's all about collaboration and huge armies of people. I, the fact that every that you can get, you know, even a small show takes 60 humans to put together that you can organize 60 humans around something that's fundamentally hugely silly should give us all hope. Oh, that's the most beautiful thing on earth. Oh. Yeah, everyone comes in and works their butts off on on something, you know, staying overnight, sweating, for something that's ultimately the definition of frivolous. I want to once again issue a huge huge thank you to everyone who participated in this series. It was an utter delight for me to get to sit down with all these people and have these conversations, and I will forever be incredibly grateful. In many ways, this show really is a love letter to animation and the people that make it. And I also want to thank every single listener who came along for the ride. If you want to write to us at Drawn Podcast, you can do so at drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us anywhere on social media as Drawn Podcast, and you can visit our website, drawnpodcast.com. Drawn.